Blog Talk Radio. Hi, this is Willie Crawford, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of The Business of Internet Marketing. And today, uh, we're going to turn the tables a little. I'm, I'm going to actually be interviewed by a, uh, a friend, uh, Eva Rosenberg, who's going to ask me uh, literally any question that she wants to ask me, but we're going to get in, deep into... What makes me tick, and uh, anything and everything about internet marketing. So, um, I welcome you to the show. Uh, feel free to call in if you'd like to. The number to call in is six one nine nine two four zero eight six one. That's six one nine nine two four zero eight six one. And I look forward to uh, to chatting with you. Uh, waiting for Eva to join us now. And she tried to call in, and she said she thinks she's she got cut off. So we'll um, wait for her to call in. Hi, this is uh, Willie, and uh, let me see if I can pick up Eva. Hi, Eva. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Good morning Excellent. or afternoon. Excellent. Afternoon. Yeah, I, I'm, I've experienced a lot of technical problems online today, and so um, what I anticipate is uh, the. Actually, I look at my dashboard and it says the show is only going to go for like 15 minutes, which doesn't make sense. But we can go for the full hour, and then I can edit the recording anyway and re-upload it, so that's not a problem. Um, so why don't we run with it? Um, thank you for for joining me today. Oh, sounds great. Whatever whatever works for you. Yeah, I, I can do like, um, I, I can edit the recording uh, and I can go for as long as I need to. Um, and so I'll put some intro and outro music and why don't we just go ahead and uh, get started. Um, hi everyone, this is Willie Crawford and I'm joined today by Eva Rosenberg who's uh, sort of turned the tables on me today. She's interviewing me rather than me interviewing uh, a guest and uh I literally told her she could ask me anything she wants to to reveal to you what makes me tick and uh, my successes, my failures, my struggles, whatever. Uh, it's, it's her call. Hi, Eva. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Willie. Um, I think one of the reasons I really wanted to do this is because so many people know you. So many people read what you're doing, hear about you. Every once in a while, you reveal little magical tidbits about things in your life. And you are probably one of the most fascinating people that I know. And you do a lot for people. So let's start with you. Tell us who you are and tell us just a little bit about what those humble beginnings of yours, you know, that log cabin that you grew up in and everything. Tell us a little bit about your start. Well, I, I grew up on a, a farm in North Carolina where we were extremely poor. In fact, we were on uh, welfare or government subsistence most of my youth, and I learned to like things like government surplus powdered eggs and uh, beans <laughs> and, and the things cheese. like that. The cheeses they give you, yeah, right? Yeah, the cheese, yeah. They gave us like these 10-pound boxes of cheese or whatever it was. And um, 
yet I I, uh, I appreciate that because I, I watched a lot of other people who didn't have as much food as we did, who some of them didn't uh, didn't seem to develop <laughs> properly. I, I think it was a lack of nutrition, and uh, so I I can't complain about that. But when I hit 11th grade, my high school guidance counselor noticed that I was achieving above average grades. I was, in fact, I had a 100 average in history and uh, and English. And uh, so she pushed me towards college, and she said, what university are you going to? And I'm like, I looked at her like she was crazy, like, we have no money for college. Uh, but uh, I applied to two universities, North Carolina State University and UNC Chapel Hill. They both accepted me, and uh, I went to NC State University, where five years later, after switching majors, I graduated. And the job market was horrible, so I went into the military for what I thought was going to be four years, five years, and 20 years later, I left the military, but six years before leaving the military, I started my online business uh, with a degree in business and economics. I always wanted my own business, and so uh, I started an online business and have never really looked back. Uh, that's what uh, I'm all about. Would that That's amazing. I'm just curious, how did you pay for college? I mean, yeah, where was the money going to come from you know, when this guidance counselor threw that idea at you? Did you get scholarships? Well, I received uh, two very small scholarships, but I received the Basic Educational Opportunity Grant, and I worked, believe it or not, three jobs when I was in college. I was a... Um, paraprofessional counselor or resident advisor in a dormitory. So I had students coming to me talking about things like they were suicidal, they'd gotten their girlfriends pregnant, they were on the base on the verge of flucking out of school, they had hmm. relatives on the verge of dying. And my oh, job God. was to counsel those students. And uh so I was trained as a paraprofessional counselor. I was also uh the uh catering coordinator for university food services and so I had the governor coming to me to set up banquets for him. And uh, I was also a cadet colonel in ROTC, which is the highest rank you can reach in ROTC. And uh, so I uh, had a lot of responsibility on my shoulder. But what I discovered was most people are afraid of responsibility. They don't, they don't want to be in charge. And so I discovered that even if you make major mistakes, no one will fire you because no one else wants the job. No one else wants to take it over. <laughs> what a deal. Uh, so you were already in ROTC in college, and so did that kind of encourage you to join the military since really the job market was probably, as you say, pretty awful? Uh, well, I noticed these guys walking around campus in uniform, and I asked somebody else, someone else, what, what is, what's up with these guys? And they said, oh, they're ROTC. And the first guys I noticed were Army ROTC. So I took a course in Army aviation where they explained that when you're flying an Army helicopter, you uh, somebody on the ground designates a target. You pop up and you shoot the target. You drop down and you move over and you pop up and shoot the target. And about the third time you pop up, they shoot you down. And I'm like, ah. I don't like that. <laughs> Those are bad. Huh? So, I know. So I, I switched to Air Force ROTC, and I was in a two-year program. They have a four-year program and a two-year program. And in the two-year program, I again, I achieved the highest rank possible. So 
uh, I thought, well, let me just try this out. And it was really that there were no other jobs available that I saw, especially in my hometown. So I went into ROTC for a while and ended up staying. And you ended up you ended up staying. Is that how you did all of your travel? Is through the army? I mean, yes. through the air force. That took you around the Most world. The where, country... where did you learn all these languages? Did you learn them while you were in college counseling people or while you were out in the world? When I was in uh, college, I had friends from India, from uh, Iran. Uh, I had actually friends who taught me to speak dirty words in Farsi or Iranian in college. And that was during the Iranian uh, hostage, hostage crisis. And, uh, right. And, and I... Yeah, I had friends uh, from Kenya. I had friends from all over. But then, when I went into the Air Force, I, I uh, discovered the Defense Defense Language Institute, and you could borrow cassette tape uh, courses. And so I borrowed uh, Japanese, I borrowed Filipino, I borrowed a couple of others. And and, and in college, I, I studied French, even though I took no no foreign language in high school. I studied French in college and and got quite good at it. So. Uh, it, it it just went from there. It just it just comes natural to me now. And so you just had no no problem assimilating conversational languages. A lot of people find that really difficult. So yeah, you ended up I, traveling uh, a lot. You ended up traveling yeah, I, a lot. Uh, so you have friends everywhere. What what's the favorite place that you ended up with of all the places you've ever been? I. Don't know. Uh, maybe either Japan or Barbados. Uh, I I studied karate. I've studied karate for thirty five years, and so most of my instructors taught in Japanese. So Japan is one of my favorite places. But my first um, little war was uh, in uh, Grenada, and we flew out of Gratley Adams Field in Barbados. And I love the the people from Barbados. I just adored them. So. Uh, one of those two. <laughs> Do you still go back to Barbados at all? I go on cruises. Um, I've, I've been on probably 10 to 12 cruises in the last 10 years. And uh, so I go all throughout the Caribbean, um, but uh, more Costa Rica, Mexico, Panama, uh, Jamaica, uh not, yeah, Barbados, Barbados doesn't seem to be like the big tourist destination. So, is it still like one of those untapped places in the universe that maybe we should we should explore and not tell anybody uh, that? I, I liked it quite a bit. I mean, I remember it. The well, we were there, uh, and the hotel association really loved us uh, because we brought a lot of business in. And they threw big parties for us. And I remember going out on cruise boats and drinking rum punch and the ten drums and all that. And there were a lot of uh, European tourists there. Uh, but I don't read that much about it, so I don't know. Uh, what's up with that? Yeah, you know, I, I can't remember the last time I heard Barbados, and I'm not even sure I heard about that in James Bond or anything. Yeah, it, it's a it's a beautiful island. It's extremely peaceful. Well, I say extremely peaceful. There was a lot of drugs there when I was there, but but um, 
the the police officers didn't even carry guns or like the Japanese and the Brits. They left their weapons at the police station most of the time, and they just carried nightsticks. And so I wore a gun when I was there because I was, you know, part of a military operation. But the, the police officers didn't even carry guns around, so it was it just seemed so peaceful. So it was a comfortable place to be where you could kick back. Do, do you still have any friends in Barbados or Japan? I have lots of friends in Japan. Um, I don't have, I, I can't think of any off the top of my head in Barbados, uh, but lots of friends in Japan. Uh, lots of uh, Americans, expats who went to Japan for whatever reason and decided to stay there, and uh, I communicate with them all the time. Um, you now you mentioned that you studied karate, and I know you know you showed us pictures and and uh, talked about your sensei in the past. Um, do you teach? I have taught. Uh, I, I studied Shotokan karate first in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, and then I went to uh, the Philippines and Japan. In Japan, I studied uh, Shotokan for a little while, and then. They moved us to. I moved to Hawaii, and there I studied Okinawa Kenpo, both uh, empty hand karate. Kara means empty, te is hand, and kobudo, which means way of the weapon. So I studied weapons too. Uh, and my teacher in Hawaii, he opened a school at Tikkum Air Force Base, and I was his first black belt in that new school. Um, and then he listed all of the schools around the world where he had. Students teaching, uh, and he listed me in Florida as one of his <laughs> teachers. <laughs> but that means so that uh, makes you responsible for starting a class. I, I taught you have to honor him, right? I, I taught at a school in Alaska for a while, but it, it was um, at a church actually, and I just decided to open a, f- a free class for students. But what I discovered was. With younger students, they don't take it seriously. I mean, with me, there's a perfect way to execute a kick or a punch or whatever. With kids, it's more of a social thing. And so I didn't enjoy it that much. Um, I I thought about starting a, a class up again, but I don't teach right now. Interesting. Yeah, I, I have a friend who teaches children, and one of the techniques he uses to get their attention is he's also a magician. So he brings magic into the class to get uh-huh. them focused. And you know, Children are attracted to that. But, you know, you, you've been involved in the military. You, you've been involved in martial arts. Have you ever gotten hurt there? I mean, I know personally when you were a kid you got hit with an axe, but what happened, you know, in other parts of your life? Did you get hurt anywhere in any other uh, oh, situation? Oh, yes, yes. Yes, I, I, uh, I've fought in karate tournaments. I fought once against a Thai kickboxer who was faster, and he got through my defenses, and he kicked me right in the throat. But I saw that he'd gotten through my defenses, so I just relaxed my body and went with the flow rather than absorbing the force. And I won the match because he was disqualified for excessive use of force. Uh, I had an <laughs> and I thought, no, I can beat him, you know, fair. And, and uh, you know, I also I see these things. I see these things in movies and television where people are kicked like crazy and they get up. How do you get up from that? If you absorb the full force of a punch or a kick, you're not going to get up from it. Uh, my first style was Shotokan, and the 
basic concept was one punch, one kick, one kill. I mean, if you wanted to kill a person, you you drove your foot into the floor as you made contact with them, and the force was transferred through their body. And it's like one punch, and if you want to take them out, they're out. So you don't get up from that if if it's serious. Uh, sport karate, yeah, that's a different thing. And the stuff you see in the movies where they're jumping on trampolines and flipping and kicking and all that, that's not that's not real. You, you, you don't get up when somebody hits you really hard. Yeah, you know, that that's one of the things that my husband and I, when we look at that, we, we kind of get offended because it's so not credible. You know, these guys are so well-trained, and yet they don't end up taking somebody out totally within, you know, one or two strikes, and they're still fighting a half hour later. Um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah I, sometimes I, that's just silly. I, I have friends who are bouncers. Uh, I, I've watched people knocked out with a single punch. I, my, my favorite punch is... My second favorite punch is the uppercut, which you hit the chin and you bump the brain against the back of the skull. That causes a concussion, concussion, and you bruise the brain, and that person passes out. Uh, my favorite punch, <laughs> you come down across the hinge where the jawbone just below the ear meets, and you unhinge your jawbone, and that's painful enough to make a person pass out. <laughs> but uh so, so how long I'm a, do they stay a, out and, and stay out of your way when you do that? Because obviously that doesn't quite kill them, but does it leave, get, you know, give you time to get away and be left alone? Oh, absolutely, and it, it takes the fight out of them. So, um, uh, but but I'm a peace loving person. I, I really of course am. you are. Um, let me ask you one question. You've you've seen Star Trek and you've seen uh, Mr. Spock use that touch that the Vulcans use. Does that the is Vulcan that mind any relationship? Meld. No, no, not the mind meld. The touch where he just knock he put, touches them on their neck or something and knocks them out. Is there really such a thing? Uh, there, there are channels of energy flowing through the body, and you can tap someone certain places and and knock them out. You, you can interrupt the flow of energy through their body. So there is such a thing, but that's uh, an art that I really haven't studied. There was uh, <laughs> another martial artist who used to teach that, but, and he taught you you could do like two chops with your hand, and you hit them in two different places, and you disrupt the flow of energy, and they passed out, uh, but that's not something I've studied. Hmm. It sounds like an interesting talent without too much harm. You know, with all of this, because you've been such a physical man, good or bad, do you have any physical problems that are now permanent? I mean, you know, you're still a young guy, but it adds up. I'm I'm 58. Uh, uh, my biggest problem is probably that I'm crazy, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, marginal high blood pressure, uh, and I'm not sure. Well, that came from drinking too much when I was in the military. Um, I uh, did a lot of things that scared the living daylights out of me, and you'd land the airplane and go for the liquid courage. And so I'd grab a fifth of scotch or vodka or whatever and (laughs) drink most of it, and I'd stop shaking for a while. (laughs) And you you don't... drink excessively now you've got so much going on around you or am i just guessing uh, no, so no i i i i uh, told myself that i needed to quit and 
at one time I totally quit. I I'm not totally quit now, but um, you know, I, I we used to land airplanes on the side of mountains uh, in, in Alaska, up near Russia. Uh, we had all these airfields that I guess were designed for monitoring the, the Soviets during the Cold War, and it looked like somebody had flown up with a helicopter, dropped a bulldozer or whatever on the side of a mountain, and wherever it landed, they dropped a couple of paratroopers who cranked it up and graded a runway. And so we had these runways on the side of mountains, and we'd fly Sounds into like the them. Army Corps of Engineers, right? Yeah, but you'd land this thing really hard to, to plant it, and as you went up to the top of the hill, you, you, you ran your before takeoff checklist because the airplane might start sliding off the side of the mountain. And if it did, you pointed it down the runway and pushed the throttles in to take off because otherwise you're going to fall off the mountain. And I, I did stuff like that. And it's like, ah. Uh, oh, come and on. So Wasn't that fun? It, it, well, we got medals for it. Uh, it was uh, <laughs> Napoleon Bonaparte. You were, you, were young, you were a kid. Wasn't that absolutely fun and, and thrilling uh, and we, scary? We lost it. An air crew who, well, they took off uh, off the mountain into the clouds, and they couldn't see the mountain through the clouds that was in front of them, and weren't climbing fast enough, and they smashed to the side of a mountain. Uh, okay, and that's not the fun. crew died. No, we we have a saying: PK of the ground is one, which means the probability of kill when you hit the ground is one. Uh, and so uh, they they hit the mountain and and they died. Um, and but we learned from that. We learned, you know, make sure you know your exact takeoff path and you climb fast enough to clear the mountains because there were mountains all around us. So, so you had but, to get uh, out of the way really yeah. fast. Did you fly yeah, into yeah. Any, any commercial airports? All over the world, yeah. Um, most challenging one was Hong Kong where you're flying straight towards a, a mountain and in the last minute you turn to line up on the runway. Um but yeah, I've I've flown into commercial airports all over the world. Do you still have a pilot's license? Or do you have a pilot's license? Uh I, I want to get a instructor license and I have friends who teach who can uh certify me as an instructor. I I, I keep thinking about doing that. Um but I haven't. And I'd like to get a a couple of years ago I thought about getting you know, a small airplane and I was out in Navarre, Florida. There was an airport near where I lived. I wanted to park there and just, you know, just fly out. These guys towed um, signs behind the airplanes. They just flew up back and forth along the beach with signs behind the airplanes. And I thought, oh, it'd be neat to fly out of this airport. And I, I watched them. They dive down with a tail hook, and it grabbed the sign. they take climb and drag the sign behind them. And I thought, that looks so neat. Uh, and so I, I enjoy flying, but uh, but I, I don't fly right now. Well, you know you don't have to buy a plane. You can join a club that owns a plane and yeah, you know, be, be one so of 10 or 20 people who share the plane or planes. Yeah, I thought about buying one and then renting it to an aero club, uh, mm-hmm. you know, let, letting other people pay for the airplane. But uh, uh, the local military base had a, a, a private flying club, and they had – a number of accidents, and they closed it down because of all the accident they had, accidents they had. And so I, I don't uh, own one, but I thought about it. 
I, I don't like a club where there are accidents. Either nobody's maintaining the plane properly or the pilots aren't very good. Because I've known people who belong to flying clubs and whoever used the plane last would write up whatever needs to be done and call it in before the next person used the plane and they never had problems. So I think a lot right. depends on the on the team that's using the the planes. So you have to. So now that you brought that up, if you ever do something like that, you're going to have to do some research. Um, yeah, we, you, we have what we call forms where you wrote mm-hmm. up any problem you noticed on the airplane, and every pilot that flew pulled out the forms and and looked at it and read about all the problems and how they were fixed uh, before flying the exactly. airplane, and then they did a walk around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the pilots that I have known are much more careful about the aircraft and their flying and their checkouts than they ever are with their car or their driving. Well, with the car, you can pull off the side of the highway. When you're in the air, you're, like, stuck there. So you make sure it's uh, pretty flawless before you take off. See, yeah. So you know, you usually at least I feel safe with a private pilot who looks like he knows what he's doing when he's doing the checkout. Um, you are a person who sells. This has been your living, and you said you even started businesses while you were still in the military. What was the business you started while you were in the military? I, it was it was an internet marketing. I. 1996, I started out as an affiliate marketer before it was even called affiliate marketing, but I I sold um, books, physical books, over the Internet, and that was before we had the red availability of of, uh, electronic fund transfers, and so they actually mailed you checks and actually mailed the books. It was before e-books were that common, and um, then I got into search engine optimization, I think one of my first clients was Paul Hartunian, the guy who sold the Brooklyn <laughs> Bridge, if you're familiar with that story. I know Paul. <laughs> and uh, Okay. And, and uh, he was one of my first clients, and um trying to remember his name, the guy who, who starred in the movie The Secret with uh, Joe Vitale. I uh, can't remember his name, but, um, uh, but he, he taught uh, – he he did a, a video on the law of attraction with a girl from Australia named Michelle Blood, and he talked about being a magnet for money. And uh, it, uh, I have his cassette tape still in my possession, even though I don't own a cassette player anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, can you so, convert so that? <laughs> you can, you can. And you can convert uh, video cassettes, too, to, to DVD. Mm-hmm. And, and I have a lot of video cassettes. So, uh, in fact, I have, uh, we mentioned karate, I have Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon. I just noticed that in my collection. And I think, I'm thinking I'll have that converted if they'll do it. I don't know what, what the copyright laws are anymore. I've seen his videos on YouTube. So, apparently, that was 73, 74. So, it's probably out of copyright now. I don't know unless they renewed it. Um well, I don't know that it matters if you convert your own your own prod, you know, your own disc or VD or DVD, you know, DVD or whatever to another format for a private use. I don't think you have a problem with that kind of copyright issue. Okay, okay. And because you're not selling it, you're not showing it. No, I was trying to think of Bob Proctor's name. Uh, 
I, I did some uh, website optimization for Bob Proctor too uh, back in the day. So that that, that was uh, my first uh, couple of businesses. Yeah. Well, when, you know, you started selling very, very early in life. You started selling seeds out of comic books. How did you get the courage to go knocking on doors in your area where you know a lot of people didn't have money? Well, they were my, – my neighborhood, I grew up on a, a, a dirt road out in the country where everybody except for one family was a relative. And the the one family at the far end of the road was a Native American, and everyone else was relatives. And so they encouraged me, and, uh, you know, they they all grew their own foods, and so selling mm-hmm. seeds was no big deal. And uh, then I noticed an ad for Christmas cards, so I ordered a catalog, and I started selling greeting cards, and I sold later clothing uh, and People, they're going to buy those things anyway, so it didn't take a lot for me to knock on their doors because they they encouraged me. They, uh, they supported me. And you weren't me. embarrassed or anything. I mean, I find it harder to face family than strangers. No, I, I wasn't embarrassed at all. They, uh, I, I learned so yep, much nice from uh, relatives. Yeah, yeah, they, they, were, they were very supportive and... Uh, and how big is your family? I mean, they, you probably are all scattered all over the world. You must get have reunions periodically. My grandmother's parents had, I think, 12 children. And all of those cousins, grandkids, and all of those people, they are all um, fairly well connected. I mean, yeah, you have little... Uh, Disagreements from time to time, but they were all very, very connected. So they're all over the world now. My my mother lives in Connecticut, and my father he passed away recently, but he.